Thank you, team. Uh, felt like Easter there for a minute, didn't it? Kind of, you know, in church history, uh, Sundays are treated like mini Easter's, little celebrations of the good news that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and that He was raised on the third day. Beautifully led today. Thank you, guys. Um, some of you will remember these little commercials that were run by the Ad Council a number of years ago. Watch them up here on the screen. This is Jack Thomas. Today, someone almost brought Jack something to eat. Someone almost drove him to a shelter. And someone else almost brought him a warm blanket. And Jack Thomas? Well, he almost made it through the night. This is Sarah Watkins. A lot of people almost helped her. One almost cooked for her. Another almost drove her to the doctor. Still another almost stopped by to say hello. They almost helped. They almost gave of themselves. But almost giving is the same as not giving at all. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Perhaps if the ad council worked for the Apostle John, they might tweak their ad just a little bit, and it might read like this, don't almost love, love. If you'll open your Bibles to 1 John 3, I'd like to pray for us. Let's bow together. Lord, have mercy upon us now and help us in the thing that matters most and the thing that we struggle with most, that of loving one another well, beautifully as Christ. So by your spirit and your word, help us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I want you to think about how you feel about the church. How do you, how do you feel about the church? Not necessarily what you believe about the church, so that's part of it, but how do you feel about it? Could we say rightly of you that you love the church? Would that be going a bit too far? Would it be better to say, well, I attend the church? Um, maybe even that I'm committed to the church, or maybe that I just put up with the church. Um, maybe you attend church because it's the right thing to do or because it's good for your kids. Could you, with a clear conscience, wear this shirt? Wait, not that shirt. Wait a second. Give me the next shirt. That shirt. Could you, with a clear conscience... Not style, but could you with a clear conscience wear this shirt? Is that a true description of you? Not talking about the building or the music or even the preaching. I'm talking about the people sitting around you. C.S. Lewis said something really profound. He said, it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love 
individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive, a good description of the church. Loving everybody in general, he said, may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. So do you love the church? Do you love the people who sit around you in the church? The bothersome individuals in the church, do you truly love them or are you settling for almost loving them? You know, John's exhortations in these matters are really strong. This is how we closed last week's passage. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And John's really clear here. The love of your brother and sister, his language is inclusive here, is a big deal. It's, it's one of the decisive markers between the children of God and what he calls the children of the devil. And this is the marker that John wants to address with us in the passage that's ahead of us in the next few verses. Look at verse 11. He says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And when he writes that we are to love one another, so this is not something new he's writing just in this letter. Um, They've been taught this from day one. Jesus had famously taught it, and John himself had recorded it back in John 13, where it says this. It says, a new commandment I give to you, Jesus says, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's, it's been the core message of Jesus for his followers from the beginning. Francis Schaeffer, in a little article that I'll post on our blog this week, um, famously called it the mark of the Christian. And without that mark, John says, you belong to a whole other category. You're not of God. You're of the devil. Or as he'll put it in our passage, you're not of Christ. You're of Cain. Look, look at verse 12. We should not be like Cain, he writes, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So you've probably heard the story of Cain and Abel, the two brothers, back from Genesis, way back in Genesis 4. So Abel brings an offering uh, to God, and God accepts it. Cain brings an offering to God and is rejected. And in an act of apparent jealousy and spite, Cain murders his brother Abel. And this story, and the name of Cain, has become the kind of the poster boy for an evil turning away from God and away from love of brother. And so John is urging us here, don't be like Cain. Don't yield to jealousy and envy that leads to murder. And honestly, most of us are inclined to think at this point, I'm good with that. No murder. Got it. It's been a long time since I've murdered anyone. we're, We're good with this. But then you have to remember kind of the troubling words of Jesus that press this more into our heart. He says in Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is even angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Um, So could we be more along the way of Cain in here than we'd like to admit? Could we be haters in here? Could we be murderers in here? Is anger towards someone lingering in your heart? You know, the um, AAA did this survey, and they found that nearly 80% of U.S. drivers expressed significant anger, aggression, or road rage behind the wheel at least once in the past year, 80%. The most alarming findings suggest that approximately 8 million U.S. drivers, okay, 8 million U.S. drivers engaged in extreme examples of road rage, including purposefully ramming another vehicle or getting out of the car to confront another driver. Many drivers report engaging in the following kinds of road rage. Purposefully tailgating, 51%. This half of the church purposefully tailgates. (laughs) Yelling at another driver, this half yells at other drivers. Honking to show annoyance or anger, 45%. Don't worry about that one. That's a courtesy. Don't worry about that one. Making angry gestures, a third of us, and trying to block another vehicle from changing lanes, one out of four. See, but even though the love of God is to be extended to all, even sorry drivers... John's main concern is in here, okay? not out there. It's in the aisle, not in the road. Are you angry at someone here? Maybe someone who's wronged you. Are you less than loving towards someone here? Maybe someone who mistreated you. Are you allowing a grudge to grow in the soil of unforgiveness? Are you allowing brokenness and bitterness to slowly fracture your relationship with someone here? And so John is pointing out two very clear paths before us. And the first follows the way of Cain. And the language surrounding Cain's way is sobering. Cain is of the evil one. He hates his brother. He will even murder him. So this morning, I am imploring you this morning, do not go even one baby step down that way, okay? Don't let it lodge in your heart any anger, bitterness, distance, indifference. Don't let it take hold in the slightest Paul puts it this way. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity, no foothold to the devil. Instead, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So this morning... Do you have any relationships that you feel uneasy describing with those words? Have you put away all bitterness and wrath? 
towards that person? Are you lavishing grace and forgiveness on them as Christ lavished it on you? John continues in verse 13. He says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Strong words. And as I mentioned, Cain is kind of a paradigm of sorts. He represents the world that does not know God and who does not love the people of God. And he says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Don't be surprised if you see billboards like this. Um, just skip church. It's all fake news. Or this one. Bacon is our God because bacon is real. By the United Church of Bacon from praisebacon.com. But there you can see it's the proud member of the Las Vegas Coalition of Reason. Um, you see... One of the clearest demarcations between believers and non-believers is that we love the brothers. We love the church. And the world does not. So John is looking down two paths here, two ways to live. Those who are of God and love the brothers and have eternal life and those who are of the devil and hate and murder and abide in death. And some of you are thinking, well, I, I'm... I don't really love the church or hate the church. I'm just kind of indifferent. And, you know, John doesn't have a category for you. He has two colors in his coloring book, black and white. Um, you're in no man's land, according to John, and that's a very, very dangerous place to be. See, to fail to love the church... To fail to love the people that are around you evidences a life apart from God, and to hate is to abide in death, not the life God offers. To fail to love is to be a murderer in here. John even goes so far as to say it's to be without the life God gives. So, John is, is making us wonder at points if it's even possible to be a Christian at all and not have some love for the church and her people. So how do you get that kind of love? Well, this kind of love is found only in a relationship with God, and that's what he turns to next in verse 16, where he says, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Okay. The way we know love comes from Christ laying down his life for us. The generosity of the Son and laying down his life, getting the love of Christ for us, grasping this, his great giving, loving act, the giving of his very life for us, is what fuels our love for another. John says it plainly in the next chapter. We love because he first loved us. And as we ponder that, as we come to grips with this, that Jesus died for me and for us, for the people in this room. 
the agony of being publicly whipped again and again and again, the humility of the crown of thorns, the soldier's cruel games being spat upon, the crushing weight of the crossbeam as he carried it up to Calvary, the nails driven through his hands and feet, the public mockery, the aloneness of it all as he was separated from the Father for the first and only time in all of eternity. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. See, when we get that, the, Jesus' great sacrificial act of love and laying down his life on the cross for us, this is what it means to be loved. And this, to know what this love is, is fuel for us to lay down our lives for the brothers, for the church. You would have thought John would have said, Jesus laid down his life for us. We should lay down our lives for Jesus. That's not what he says. He said, Jesus lays down his life for us. We should lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, which is loving Jesus. Let's see if we can make sense out of that. This chain reaction of love works really for two reasons. One, the love of Christ by its very nature is passonable, right? It is meant to be passed on. It is too voluminous for us to contain it at the edge of our property. It just spills over. To keep it just for me we cannot do that. John writes about it in the next chapter this way. He says, uh, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So it's too great a love to be limited to just me and mine. It begs to be passed on to others, especially to one another. To the people here, they ought to be lavish recipients of the love of Christ through you. The second reason is that this love makes us see our brothers and sisters differently. You see, Jesus did not just love me and give himself for me. He didn't just lay down his life for me. He laid down his life for us. So now, what that means is seated all around you are the people Jesus loves. The people singing off key behind you are the people Jesus loves. Okay. Um, and so to love Jesus is to love what he loves. To love someone is to love what they love. Um, so my wife loves me. And as unbelievable as that is to me at times, I don't doubt it at all. Okay. And because she loves me, she can tell the difference between a red-bellied and a red-headed woodpecker. Right? And because she loves me, she knows how to paddle a kayak and ride a road bike. Think Trek, not Harley. Um, because it's an expression of her love for me. Um, she has learned to love what I love. 
And so to love Jesus is to love what he loves. It's to love who he loves. And they are seated all around you this morning. See, to be loved by Jesus yields love for Jesus. And then we have to love what he loves, who he loves. We love his brothers and sisters. We love his bride. We love the church. If they are Jesus' beloved, then they must be loved by us. So this is why it's, it's so problematic when people tweet things like, I love Jesus, I'm just not wild about his bride. There's something terribly out of sorts with the idea that we can love Jesus and not his church. It just doesn't fit at all. It's not even close to what John is teaching here, wouldn't you say? Um, so think of it like this. If you and I go to coffee and all of a sudden you start ragging on my wife and then ragging on my kids, um, let's just be honest. You're probably never going to get to my kids. You start ragging on my wife and coffee's over, right? Right, guys? Um, you diss my wife, our friendship has no future. Okay? So John says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and the sisters because they're the beloved of God. And so John's doing two things here. He's, he's offering assurance to them of their faith as they see the love that they share as God's people. And he's also calling them more fully into this Christ path of loving one another. And he's protecting, protecting them and us from a life of almost loving one another and thinking that it's good enough of going down the way of Cain. And John is now about to get very practical, probably too practical for our comfort in these next couple of verses. He says in verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So, in particular, John says, love is shown in the meeting of another brother or sister's need. If you become aware of a need of a fellow follower of Jesus, and you have the ability to meet that need, and you close your heart against them, you are damming up the love of God at the edge of your life, and this we must not do. This is a betrayal of the love of God for us. This is the way, this is taking us down the way of Cain. And so he says, it is not enough to talk about love. Love requires action. You could say love is sacrificial action. There's a, quite a number of years ago, there's a book called Dad the Family Coach that a guy named Dave Simmons wrote. And he describes the shape that love takes in the life of his eight-year-old daughter. He says, I took Helen, who's eight, and Brandon, who's five, to the Cloverleaf Mall in Hattiesburg to do a little shopping. And as we drove up, we spotted a Peterbilt 18-wheeler parked with a big sign on it that said, Petting Zoo. 
And the kids jumped up in a rush and said, Daddy, Daddy, can we go? Please, please, can we go? And he says, sure. And he flipped them both a quarter before walking into Sears. Like I said, it's a long time ago. Um, and they bolted away and felt free to, I felt free to take my time looking for a scroll saw. He says, a petting zoo consists of a portable fence erected in the mall with about six inches of sawdust and a hundred little furry baby animals of all kinds. Kids pay their money and stay in the enclosure enraptured with the squirmy little critters while their moms and dads shop. So he says, a few minutes later, I turn around and I see my eight-year-old Helen walking along behind me. I mean, he says, I bent down and asked her what was wrong, and she looked up at me with those giant, limpid brown eyes and said sadly, well, Daddy, it cost 50 cents. So I gave Brandon my quarter. And then she said, the most beautiful thing I ever heard, he says. He says, she repeated the Simmons family motto. The family motto is, love is action. She had given Brandon her quarter, and no one loves cuddly, furry creatures more than Helen. So he says, what do you think I did? Probably not what you think. As soon as I finished my errands, I took Helen to the petting zoo, and we stood by the fence and watched Brandon go crazy, petting and feeding the animals. Helen stood with her hands and chin resting on the fence and just watched Brandon. He said, I had 50 cents burning a hole in my pocket. I never offered it to Helen, and she never asked for it, because she knew the whole Simmons family motto. It's not love is action. It's love is sacrificial action. Love always pays a price. Love always costs something. Love is expensive. When you love, benefits accrue to another's account. Love is for you, not for me. Love gives. It doesn't grab. Helen gave her quarter to Brandon and wanted to follow through with her lesson. She knew she had to taste the sacrifice. She wanted to experience the total family motto. Love is sacrificial action. And so John is calling us as those who have tasted of the sacrificial love of Christ to live lives that mark us as distinct from the world. He's calling us to love one another, to love the church with sacrificial action. When one has a need and the other has the means, the need is to be met in love. Having tasted of this generosity of Christ in love towards us, we are compelled to pass it on. The language of 2 Corinthians 5 is Christ's love compels us. And that means loving one another with a costly sacrificial love. So Bob Armstrong gave his wife Pamela on Valentine's Day bouquet and after a few days after receiving the bouquet, Pamela noticed that Elvis the kitty was lethargic. He refused to eat treats at night. Bob and Pamela took Elvis to the vet, and blood tests showed that his kidneys were failing due to a poison in one of the plants. But the Armstrongs, who had rescued their kitty Elvis after he had been abandoned, would spare no expense to save their pet. They took Elvis to the renal transplant program at Penn's School of Veterinary Medicine. For the next month, the Armstrongs drove Elvis two hours each way, three times a week for dialysis treatment. At the end of the month, a team of veterinarians at the Penn School completed the kidney transplant for their kitty Elvis. We practically lived at the ICU, Mr. Anderson said. They also spent $15,000 for the surgery and the dialysis. Mrs. Armstrong said, we have friends who think we're crazy to do this for a cat. 
you think. <laughs> but she said, this cat was worth it to us. Crazy? Probably. But one thing's for sure, these people love their cat, right? Um, and so John says to us, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. These verses um, can be understood a couple of slightly different ways. You could take them as a, as a way that God soothes our troubled conscience, but I'm gonna push this a different direction that, the idea here is that he's pressing us to love one another in deed and truth all the more. And so um, there's a different translation that renders it a little, a little clearer that way. The Lexham English Bible says, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. By this we know that we are of the truth and will convince our heart before him that if our heart condemns us, that God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So the idea is that when we love in deed and truth, that gives us assurance that we are of the truth. And so it's a God thing, no doubt. When you love the honorary, mischievous people in this room, that's a God thing, right? That's God at work. But when we fail in that, when our heart probably not our conscience, or probably our heart condemns us because we failed to love our brother or sister, then we must convince our hearts that there's an even greater condemnation and judgment that waits, and that's from God who is greater and knows all. So this is a challenge to not almost love, but to check our hearts when we are tempted to settle for mere words and not deeds of love. Verse 21 says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So if our hearts don't condemn us, that is if we really do love our brother or sister in tangible, active ways, then we have this confidence before God. Not only that we belong to him, but it also affects our prayers. He says in verse 22, Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. So when we honor and obey God, specifically John is saying when we believe in Jesus and we love one another, that's what he has at the forefront of his mind, we have confidence before God when we pray, which, which makes sense because our hearts are aligned with God. We're probably praying for the needs of others whom God loves. Um, prayer works better when we pray the will of God, right? And the will of God is that we would believe in Jesus, that we would keep his commandments, especially that we would love one another. Professor Colin Cruz kind of connects the dots for us here when he says, there can be no obedience of God's commands if there is no love for one another. There can be no love for one another if people close their hearts to those in need. And there can be no confidence when approaching God in prayer when people close their hearts 
to fellow believers in need. Our obedience, especially our love for one another, assures us of our abiding relationship with God, as does the presence of the Spirit. And the presence of the Spirit enables us to believe in Jesus and to love. This is the Spirit's good, assuring work. So loving one another is the essential mark of one who follows Christ. It marks us. It must mark us all the more. And just in this little section of John that we've been looking at today, listen to all that, all that love, loving one another means and matters. In verse 10, the way we love one another makes it evident that we're God's children and not children of the devil. Verse 11, loving one another is the message that we've heard from the beginning. Verse 14, loving one another assures us that we've passed out of death into life. Verse 16, loving one another is our essential response to the love of Jesus for us on the cross. Verse 17, loving one another opens our hands and our wallets to those who are in need. And verse 23, loving one another is the command of Jesus for us. And we have confidence in prayer and assurance of our abiding communion with God when we love one another in deed and truth. So John is pressing us to walk not in the way of Cain, but in the way of Christ, the way of undeserved love for others. And so again, let, let me plead with you this morning. Don't take one step down the way of Cain. Don't take a step of indifference and distance or lack of concern or bitterness or unforgiveness or anger or prideful waiting for another to love you first. And it's really important this morning that you ask yourself, am I on that road with someone? Have I allowed that to happen in my heart? Is it causing you to be content with almost loving someone, saying you do, but not doing it? Is it giving you pause when you think about moving towards someone in love and forgiveness? Are you waiting on them to make the first move? I'd like us just to pray about that together. To pray and see if God has anything he wants to say to us at the way we're loving or not loving the people who are around us. Um, and so let me invite you just to bow with me in prayer and I'd like to read scripture over you about this matter. And as you listen to the scripture, let God speak to you about the way you're loving this church family. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. 
So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And you were called to be free, brothers. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. And I urge you, walk worthy of the calling you've received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love. Let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. Because by obedience to the truth, Having purified yourselves for sincere love of the brothers, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And above all, maintain an intense love for each other since love covers a multitude of sins. So Lord, have mercy on us now. It's sobering to think about that the most important thing in the world is something we struggle with. And yet, um, and yet it's hard to love well. It's hard to love the undeserving in our eyes. So help us, Lord. I, th- I think now there's some very specific things that you've brought to mind, very specific people. We've gone steps down Cain's way towards, and help us now to repent and walk in Jesus' way, to walk with love, even towards those who've wronged us, even to those who've, failed to love us back. Um, They are your loved ones. And because we love you, we love them. Help us, Lord. Have mercy on us. Even now, we pray in Christ's great name. Amen. If you'll stand, let's worship Christ together.